0: I'm Sonia Derman. And I'm Maria Stabio. This is 2MF on Clocktower Radio, clocktower.org. 2MF is a series of monthly community meetings, open and participatory experiences that we organize, collaborating each month with selected New York City artists. 2MF aims to encourage pro-emotive and anti-academic conversation among artists in New York City. All meetings are free and open to the public. For more information, visit the number 2manyfeelings.com. Post-meeting discussion occurs here on Clocktower Radio. Episodes feature conversations with 2MF's facilitating artists, reflecting on the recent in-person meeting. This month's meeting took place at Orgy Park with Caitlin McDonough on Saturday, June twenty fifth, 2016. Kaylin McDonough paints exuberant abstractions, often incorporating
1: objects and non-traditional supports. She received her MFA from Tyler School of Art and her BFA from Boston University, summa cum laude. McDonough's work has been exhibited throughout Italy, in Venice, Rome, Vicenza, Bologna, Verona, and in Boston, New York, and Serbia. She is the recipient of the Temple University Project Completion Grant and has participated in a residency at the Vermont Studio Center. McDonough is currently based in Brooklyn, New York, and works as the program coordinator of the New York Studio School of Drawing, Painting, and Sculpture. Welcome,
0: Caitlin McDonough. Thank you. Yeah. So in our most recent meeting with you at Orgy Park, we talked about performative language and your general interest in it, how you incorporate it into your paintings and your work and your thinking. Um, you chose the text, "How Performatives Work" by John R. Searle. Um, and touching feeling by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, which I am in the middle of now. I'm really yeah. excited. We really liked
1: this term, performative language, and we were wondering if you could, in your own words, describe what it means.
2: Yeah. So um, it was it was first introduced by J.L. Austin in the fifties, a linguist, um, to talk about language situations that. Um, our actions not just speech but that the saying of something actually constitutes doing it so I've been fascinated by this idea and I think my definition um, would probably make Austin roll in his grave a little <laughs> bit just because um, he had a very kind of structured um, checklist of things that needed to be in place including um, a speaker, the pronoun I, with this agency um, t- saying, I promised to call you tomorrow or I apologize. Mm-hmm. Those, those things um, actually create a promise or create an apology. Um, in, in the examples that we spoke about during the meeting, um, I've taken it to a place that doesn't necessarily um, rely on a external social construct. So I think for me, um, the way I think about performative language is any time that sound actually affects a change um, in the physical way, mm-hmm. um, or perhaps not physical. It could be psychological, but um, language or sound that actually constitutes change.
1: Okay. Um, and just to kind of wrap that up i also thought about what you said about how performative language creates this before and after moment mm-hmm. and i wondered if that kind of adds to that definition for you because or maybe you could talk about how that adds to the definition because i really thought that that was an interesting term because it it creates this you know the before the the phrase or the the declaration was said the situation was one way and then after the phrase was said it became another way so there was this transformation um and I thought that that was a really interesting way of
2: defining it um yeah definitely um I think in the in the more classic examples um that Austin and and Searle expounding upon Austin the ones that he recognized christened the ship Bartholomew or whatever it's going to be, there's very much that before and after state. Um, I think something that um, Searle brings out in in his um, expanding upon this idea is the idea of the dramatic present. And what he means by that tense is um, he gives the example of a chemistry class where if the science teacher is saying, I measure the... Chloride, and I pour it into the beaker. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this kind of unfolding, mm. and so for me, I see kind of a, a spectrum of um, temporality that can happen with these things. Um, in the more classic examples, there there is this state change. Mm-hmm. Um, we we spoke about a doctor's prognosis, and um, if a doctor says you may have blah, 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 and I'd like you to get these follow-up tests. Before they uttered that, you were fine and feeling good. And then after, there's all of the ensuing anxiety um, and the way you see yourself has dramatically shifted. Um, In the later examples that we spoke about, um, Yoko Ono's latter piece, and um, the way I think about the language in my own paintings relates much more to that idea of the dramatic present. I think it's um, a little more embodied and durational. So um, it would t- unfold in in the experience of viewing that painting or of being on top of her ladder and looking into that little hole in the ceiling. Mm. Um, and would perhaps be less about a before and after and a kind of um, relational temporality, um, the idea of leisure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just kind of being a little fuzzier with with its boundaries.
0: Yeah, I also think about the painting lets, um, and how the ideas that you're talking about play into this construction of this open-ended Yeah. Participation.
2: Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think, but, and it's funny because I, you know, as these words were entering my paintings, I wasn't thinking of them in a performative language sense. It's only after the fact that mm-hmm. I kind of realized that that's where they were coming from. But I think you make a really good point, Sonia. Um, the the word lets, it, it implies a missing verb so Hmm. let's talk or let's dance or let's sleep whatever whatever that verb is going to be there's an implication of it but it's not actually present and same thing with the word yes um you you wouldn't start a conversation by walking up to someone and saying yes (laughs) it it would be a it would be a response to a question right and that question the absence of that question just leaves this kind of loaded potentiality. And mm-hmm. I think that contributes to this other temporality that's um, fuzzier and, <laughs> right. and relational. Um, whereas when, the, um, when you have a more classic c- structure to this, I promise to call you tomorrow, it's very clear who the actor is and the, and the context of that. It's mm-hmm. it's more bounded.
1: Right. And that actually brings me back to this question of how did you decide to choose this topic for the meeting? Because um, clearly there's a connection between your painting and um, this idea of performative language. And I'm curious how you found your way because you said in the beginning, the painting wasn't um, necessarily aware of this concept. So maybe you could talk more about that.
2: Definitely. Um, so, I I really don't consider myself as someone who um, for whom language comes very naturally. Um, if I had to analyze why, I think I was raised very closely by my Middle Eastern grandmother and great grandmother, and English was not their first language, and they spoke English. But um, I feel like much of the time that we were together, from my early early childhood through adolescence. Um we were communicating, not even necessarily through language at all, um, right. whether it was touch or just being in one another's presence. Um, and I think that kind of haptic way of being in the world is, obviously, I use language <laughs> and I yeah. um, recognize its attributes. but um, I think for me, when i'm when I'm looking at artwork or making my own work, um, I tend to respond on a more energetic, um, physical physical way um, primarily and then maybe bring it into a more language based way of cognating <laughs> um, yeah. so um, when when you guys gave me the opportunity to present a topic for this meeting I wanted it to be something where I still had questions um, something yeah. that I find really fascinating but I by no means consider myself any kind of expert. I, I find it um, really mysterious still, even after um, thinking about this and having the meeting, um, the ways that sometimes when we say something or make a sound, it actually can change reality, even slightly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so I really wanted to pick something that I found Mysterious and about which I have questions rather than um coming in and saying, "This is something I firmly understand in its totality, yeah,
0: yeah. I also thought it was interesting how you brought in the Perry performative um which was Kosovsky's Sedgwick, which is kind of this counterpoint to your first text, and I thought it was really interesting thinking about the ways that obfuscating language using circular language um, has this other kind of, like, radical potentiality, mm-hmm. um, which I had also never thought about before and was curious about your engagement with that text.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I think this, this notion of the periperformative that she introduces in Touching Feeling is just brilliant.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: to kind of paraphrase her definition of it, um, what she considers the periperformative is everything that's on the periphery of a performative, um, in in the chapter that we read, she uh, uses the example of marriage um, and saying "I do" at a wedding. Um, you go from married to being single, but this she she introduces the axis of space into this discussion, which I think is um, such an expansive way of thinking about these ideas. So. Um, she uses the word neighborhood a lot um, to talk about ideas that are not um, directly counter to the performative but actually are built all around it some closer to it in proximity some further away Mm -hmm. and um, and this this opens up the possibility to um, not counter the performative with something that that directly contradicts it, but rather to, exactly like you said, to dance all around it and imbue it with a complexity that can undermine it, um, support it, relate to it in a myriad of ways that are not just um, dualistic, yes or no, um, but much more layered and Um, Yeah,
0: I also see links between that and kind of the mode that you presented in, which was really, I think, unusual in our past meetings. We've had people do projections or slideshows, which are quite linear one after the other. And you had this hand created kind of (laughs) map mapping. Um, We'll put up some images on our website, but I wonder if you could talk about that process of thinking about the meeting and the way that you actually physically presented your ideas.
2: Yeah, it was, um, it was one of those very serendipitous things <laughs> that occurred. Um, so the meeting was in June, um, four days after the longest day of the year, and we were lucky mm-hmm. enough at Orgy Park to have this amazing outdoor space yeah. to hold the meeting. Um, so y- having attended previous ones and um, seeing these great PowerPoints, Uh, Initially, I thought, okay, I'll make my PowerPoint, (laughs) and it's going to be wonderful. Um, But knowing that we were going to be outside and it wasn't going to be dark until after 9 p.m., I thought, there's no way this is going to work, which turned out to be amazingly fortunate because this way of mapping is how I would have begun to organize Mm -hmm. my thoughts in preparation to create a PowerPoint. Um, So having it be the complete presentation all on one large sheet of paper um, is the, the most wonderful thing <laughs> in my mind um, because it's it's actually how I would go about thinking about this um, and the relationality between the different ideas I love being able to just return with one's eyes to how things link up um, in a PowerPoint, you have that linearity that is very, very strict. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can yeah. go forward and backwards, but you you can't see it all at once. You have to... There's
0: still, like, two directions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. And um, so the, the map that I created <laughs> has a lot of um, connecting lines and um, more circular kind of echoes of right. different ideas. And it's really... I like that it's... It's pretty
1: artistic in its own, right? I mean, it's like it's very colorful. It's got highlighted parts and there's like collage elements. Um, I think it's just a really fun object, you know it's really it's really fascinating out on its all on its own. And I also really liked that you had these handouts that were in these like plastic sleeves, basically, <laughs> and they were like color printouts. and I mean it was I thought it was so much fun because it was a way to share with people. But it was definitely on a more human scale, I would say. And I think it really brought some intimacy to the group because there is this act of having to pass on the handout to the next person. Um, And that's something that we strive for in the meetings is to create these interpersonal connections and um, conversations that may not happen in an ordinary, just you know, group meeting where people don't know each other. It's like a way to create this connection, Um, but also we talked a little bit about the, um, what was his name? Dr. Emoto. Emoto, no. who ha- who did these experiments with water. Maybe. Maybe. He definitely did them. <laughs> okay. He just wouldn't, he did them. He wouldn't
2: um, open them up to peer review. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Okay.
1: But they were like, you had these handouts of like, he had, what was it, he said the words to the water? Or how, how did that work exactly? I think
2: sometimes they were spoken, but I think the preferred method was to have a container of water with the word or phrase taped oh, to the taped. outside of it. I don't right. know the the length of time. I don't know if it takes <laughs> five minutes or if it needs to be there for five months. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And then the appearances of the crystals were like more beautiful, quote unquote, If they were, like, positive things, like... Um, I love you. I love you. But, like, things like hate or something like that would create this, like,
0: ugly I also thought more about that, and I was like, (laughs) those are using kind of really conventional standards of, like, what is beautiful. Absolutely. I thought the
2: the rock music as one of the (laughs) ugly (laughs) ones was so funny. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. How subjective can you be? Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, Yeah, I, I, you know... I'm I'm very sympathetic to a lot of pseudoscience, but my whole take on the, the these um experiments and his conclusions is really that it says a lot more about our malleability when it comes to language as humans. I think the water is in these containers doing its thing. I'm I'm the jury's out on yeah. whether or not it was affected, but it I mean I don't know if you guys would agree. I think it's really compelling when you see those images and you see the word love and you see this very symmetrical, intricate snowflake pattern. You're like, yes, of course. (laughs) And then with the word hate and it's this ugly, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm tumor-like. Right. It's like all brown in the images that he has. Um, I think it actually says a lot more about our willingness to, because perhaps when we hear these words or think them, um, it, it conjures up either an, a sense of opening or a tightening. Um, mm, and so right. it's really easy to project onto the water, onto these images, our own yeah I, I see it as a mirror yeah. and not as actually changing the water. Sorry, yeah. Dr. Motel. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, but it is interesting because that study has had study in quotation marks, um, has had so much um, reference. I think it's really been meaningful. I mean, I'm skeptical of whether it's true, but I think it definitely says something that people find so much power and potentiality and really want to believe that kind of saying these words kind of has this profound effect even on um, non-living
2: non-human right yeah absolutely um it was a bestseller um mm-hmm. it was in you told me it was in that movie oh, right um that I think had a lot I haven't What's seen the it bleep
0: do you know oh, which right I was right forced to see when I was 22 you were forced to see when you were 22 yeah. Yeah, why no, I shouldn't say that. I wasn't forced. I was told by a friend of mine in San Francisco. In San Francisco, I knew that was the part that we were leaving. Yeah, out, San Francisco. You've got to see this amazing movie about. <laughs> it's so annoying. Yeah,
2: it's <laughs> interesting. So I haven't seen it. I'm, I won't. I, I won't don't pass I judgment. Would recommend it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't
0: recommend it. It's actually it is fascinating as like a cultural artifact right. for the same reasons about kind of well we talked about magical thinking. Yeah, what you say, kind of can somehow magically yeah undo time and create alternate realities that ex- i mean it's a right. it was it was created by um a cult potentially oh <laughs> so God. really Yikes. but incredibly popular like yeah actually um in mainstream <laughs> cinemas at that time so oh, it's wow. interesting how much of how much it resonated again with yeah mm-hmm. people i believe yeah
2: that. and i i think like parts of this do fit into the idea of performative language but it's you know Searle brings up the the question at the beginning of his essay where he says okay if if i can apologize by saying i apologize and that creates an apology why can i not fix the roof by saying i fix, I the, fix roof. the roof yeah and so mm-hmm. it comes back to that i think i think Perhaps in subtle internal ways we we can reframe our experience right. of reality through language and through um this suggestion of a different I mean that's that's what I do with the, with the word leisure. I I use it to demarcate when I'm not at work. It's <laughs> now yeah. yeah. leisure. Um but yeah, I, I think Maybe the efficacy of it is a little more limited than mm-hmm. some some of this um, more new age stuff mm. suggests. I don't know. I, I certainly, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll leave, leave it up to the audience, I guess. To yeah. Right. To pick up their own minds. Okay. Well, uh, we just want to say thank you so much, Caitlin, for participating. We really thought your meeting went so well. Um do you have anything else you want to add?
2: I want to thank you guys. Um, I Yeah, I think just as a kind of closing thought, I'm just so excited about the form that 2MF creates. Um, I think it it's so in keeping with this idea of a neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's these different central points, uh, but they have all of these offshoots that connect and echo them and make them more complex and um it, it's just been so much fun to participate and um yeah thank you thank yeah, you both thank <laughs> you
1: yeah definitely uh so our next event is titled my best worst thing at orgy park on saturday july 23rd at 6 30 p.m my best worst thing is an evening devoted to regret bad art in quotes hindsight and artistic doubt Participating artists and thinkers will select and share a piece that was once a source of pride and joy, but is now a marker of a previous identity or discarded artistic slash
0: intellectual ideas. We hope you'll join us. I'm Sonia Derman. I'm Maria Stabio. And today we spoke with Caitlin McDonough. Music on this episode is titled The Promise by When in Rome. This is 2MF on Clocktower Radio, clocktower.org. Uh,